Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be disturbing, frightening, and in some cases even offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hey, there is very adult content ahead and you know what? You've been warned. <laughs> Welcome heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and the unexplained. As always, I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. There will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, Sit back, grab your favorite drink, relax, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, we are going back to our normal stories, but I want to thank each and every one of you little witchy-poos for making our Witchtober a smashing success. I hope you guys had a great time with all the witchy stories, but it's time for us to get back to some normal stories, or well, normal for us anyways. <laughs> so since we had a whole month of witchy poo stories, I decided we'll jump back into the regular episodes with a crazy ass murder mystery. Although after you hear the story, it's not much of a mystery, but it's kind of cool and it's kind of long. So settle in. And as always, we will be playing our drinking game. As you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. Losers! I will leave the choice of libation up to you, my darlings, so choose your venom accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. Alright, how about every time I say money, that will be a single shot, and every time I say knife... That will be a double shot. All right. We've got our business end out of the way, and we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. With a dose of greed, sex, death, and a tangle of lies, today we present the unimaginable and infamous case of Pam Hupp. All right, my darlings, let's jump right on into it, because it's a long one, so we're going to get through it quickly, I hope. The 911 operator heard a woman refusing to get into a vehicle and begging for help. Gunshots, loud and staccato, cut through the confusion of noises. A smoke alarm shrilled. When police arrived moments later, a 33-year-old man lay dead inside the O'Fallon, Missouri home. The caller stated the man had climbed into her SUV, held a knife against her throat, and demanded that she take him to a bank to get Russ's money. Terrified for her life, she said, she'd knocked the knife away, ran inside through the garage door, dashed into the master bedroom, and grabbed a thirty-eight Ruger revolver from her nightstand as he came after her like a madman. The caller, a 58-year-old woman named Pamela Hupp, was questioned and released and was subsequently arrested and charged with first-degree murder seven days later. But before being booked, she asked to use the restroom, stabbed herself in the neck and her wrists with a ballpoint pin. I'm just going to say it right from the start. Bitches be crazy. Anyways. Locals squinted at their televisions trying to fathom this blonde woman, 
her jaw set and her face impassive. This same woman who had testified three years earlier in a murder trial against her friend's husband, where he was convicted and later acquitted of stabbing his wife 55 times. And in the meantime, Hupp's own mother had died suspiciously in a fall from a third floor balcony. The only possible motive connecting all three of these cases was money. Hupp, who had held several jobs in the insurance industry, was the beneficiary of both her friend and her mother's policies. But would somebody really stab a friend and shove their own mother off a balcony just to get some cash? Now, I know we all know some tweakers that would do that, but we're talking about people who don't do drugs on a regular basis. And then shoot a perfect stranger just to twist the plot a little more? I mean, even Hollywood doesn't write scripts this convoluted. But let's start at the beginning. Pamela Newman Hupp grew up in an orderly Catholic household in Delwood, Missouri, the third of four kids. Her mother, a school teacher, her father, a union man who worked for decades at Union Electric. Pam rode bikes with her friends, went Christmas caroling, and occasionally skipped a Sunday school. At Riverview Gardens High School, she was a blonde cheerleader with an infectious laugh. Pam was always ready for fun. No moodiness or drama, no talking behind people's backs. Her grades could have, of course, been a little bit higher, but as one friend put it, she was boy crazy. By senior year, she'd made a real catch. A boy who was soft-spoken and well-liked, a member of the soccer team, golf team, and National Honor Society. They went to their senior prom together, and three months later they, quote-unquote, had to get married. Wink, wink, you guys know what that means. Pam's devout mother wasn't pleased about the pregnancy, but Pam did the responsible thing. Her friend sensed a wistful resentment in her because everybody else was caught up in the whirl of college while here she was sitting in a cheap apartment spooning baby food. The marriage lasted only six years. Soon after her divorce, Pam married Mark Hupp, a quiet, easygoing guy who played minor league baseball for the Texas Rangers and, when he didn't make it in the big leagues, fell back on carpentry. They gave Pam's daughter a little brother and moved to Naples, Florida in 1989. They would return to Missouri in 2001 and settle in O'Fallon, and they started a business flipping houses. Pam took a job in a state farm office, and Betsy Feria was the first person she met there. Eleven years younger than Pam, Betsy was warm-hearted and bubbly and a little bit scattered-brained, always a little short of cash, but had dozens of friends who adored her dearly. Even at 32, she looked like a greeting card illustration. Round face, curly hair, pink cheeks, bright blue eyes. And she even had a part-time gig as a DJ. She could coax anybody out onto the dance floor. And Pam liked a party too, but she was far more self-contained. In fact, she viewed their boss as a mature, logical, steady, and clearly underemployed. And he recalls, She was the first employee in every morning, 
and we'd spend 10 or 15 minutes talking. And his name is Mike Beauchert. He was a new to management and he did lean hard on Pam's advice. He stated, she had very good insights, human nature wise, a positive person, very level-headed. I never saw her mad. She saw the bigger picture and she was very adept at office politics. Still, he says, not everything added up. And he stated further, she always told me she was involved somewhere like the FBI, something with a security clearance, kind of in the past, but maybe still working for them. It was like she was just letting it trickle out and then it was, well, I can't say anything about that. He continues, there were some weird things that transpired. An employee came in one day and told all of us, which was me, Pam, and maybe one other person, that she felt bad about not disclosing that she got insurance money for a new roof but never put one on. Two months later, I received a letter from a guy who bought her house asking if that was actually true. He said he'd gotten a letter on my letterhead over my signature. How that happened, I really have no clue. In addition, employees' cars were being keyed around that time, and so were the cars in the Hupp's neighborhood. Normally, safe enough for even an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, this O'Fallon subdivision was relatively new when the Hupps moved in, and most of the couples were younger, just starting their families. For the most part, the Hupps kept to themselves. Mark was quiet but congenial, did a little deer hunting, and lent a hand to his neighbors when he could. Pam could be a little bit nosy if a squabble arose between neighbors, but she socialized mainly with family. Neighbors recall a few odd incidents at the time, like a pile of bloody animal bones that got left in somebody's yard, and a few mean-spirited anonymous letters, and at the time, people just shrugged them off. Pam and Betsy lost touch for a few years, but when Betsy learned that she had breast cancer in January of 2010, Pam was there to offer support. Betsy's dad, Ken Meyer, remembers asking Betsy that summer whether she'd made financial provisions for her daughters. See, she'd been worrying about her two teenage daughters and even if her husband would spend the money foolishly. Her father stated, She asked me about a month later to come to one of her treatments, but when I got there, Pam Hupp was already sitting beside her, so we really couldn't talk. From then on, Pam Hupp took Betsy to every one of those sessions. And when it looked like Betsy had finally beaten the cancer, she and her husband Russ planned a celebration of life cruise for November of 2011, inviting close friends and family. That October, Betsy learned that the cancer had spread to her liver. Eagerly, though, she went on the cruise anyways, and Russ arranged one of her dreams to swim with dolphins. Pam wasn't part of the cruise group, but she spent almost every day with Betsy when she did return. On December 22nd, she went with Betsy to her tennis club to watch Betsy play. The next day, she and Betsy went to the library in Winghaven, where Betsy asked a young librarian to witness her signature on a change of beneficiary form. It removed Russ and made Pam the sole beneficiary. On Tuesday, December 27th, Pam showed up at Betsy's mother's apartment in Lake St. Louis to take Betsy to her chemo appointment. Janet Meyer, her mother, said they're gone already. 
Betsy had texted Pam earlier saying not to bother because her mother's friend Bobby Wan, who used to babysit Betsy, was in town and, as she stated, Bobby is going with me and I want to spend a little one-on-one time with her. Pam would later say that she never got the text, although phone records would show that her response was simply bummer. She drove alone to Siteman Cancer Center in St. Peter's and sat with Betsy and Bobby during the treatment. After the treatment, Pam drove home to O'Fallon, had a quick dinner with her husband, and drove back to Lake St. Louis to drive Betsy home to Troy. Tuesdays were Russ's game nights with his friends, and he'd planned on picking up Betsy afterwards. Her mother lived like five minutes away from one of his friends' house. He texted her around noon, stating, going to game and then come to get you. We'll call when on way. Should not be too late. Don't you love it when I talk in text? That's so much fun. Betsy, of course, replied, okay, great, honey. But after chemo, she texted, Pam Hupp wants to bring me home to bed, adding that her white blood cell count was low and she needed to rest. Russ made sure and texted back, she's bringing you? And Betsy replied, yes, she offered and I accepted. Didn't get much sleep. Mom snored. Well, every mom snores. Okay. Pam later said it was Betsy who asked for a ride. In any event, Pam showed up at Janet's apartment again and sat there patiently while Betsy, Bobby, and Janet finished playing upwards. When Betsy was ready, they set out for Troy. And when they pulled into her driveway, Pam called her husband and put Betsy on the phone So that she could say, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, Betsy sang out to him, bubbly as ever. Now, Tuesday nights after work, Russ often had dinner with his mom, and he nearly always hung out at a buddy's house with five other friends. They'd gotten into role-playing games because they'd found that it's a cheap entertainment and it's fun. A sturdily built, plain-spoken guy, Russ has a face that can look either genial or tough and his dark hair's thinning under his trademark fedora. He liked to fish and ride motorcycles, and his emotional anchors were his mother and, well, when their marriage was going well, and maybe even when it wasn't, Betsy. After she'd urged him back to school, he landed an IT job with Enterprise Holdings. On Tuesday, December 27th, Russ worked from home until 5 p.m. He called Betsy, got gas at the Conoco in Troy, and called his mom at 5.22 to say he wouldn't have time to swing by for dinner. He promised Betsy that he would pick up dog food and that he was out of cigarettes. At 5.56, he stopped at a convenience mart in Lake St. Louis and bought two bottles of Snapple. Russ and his friends met at Mike Corbin's house around 6 p.m. because one of the guys couldn't make it, They didn't have enough players to play the game, so they watched movies and smoked a little pot. About 9 p.m., Russ and two other friends left. He says he stopped at an Arby's for two junior cheddar melts and ate as he drove the the 24.6 miles back to Troy. He walked inside the house, let the bag of kibble slide to the floor, took off his jacket, and stepped into the living room. Betsy was lying on the floor. He later said his first split-second thought was that she was feeling sick, but as he knelt next to her, his brain registered the blood matting her hair and pulled around her neck. 
Her wrists were slashed open, and the black handle of one of their kitchen knives was sticking out of her throat. Had she killed herself? She'd tried that before by cutting her wrist, and with the latest news that the cancer was spreading, well, he stumbled to his feet and he called 911. First responders found a body that was cold and stiff. The blood coagulated on her scalp, dried hard on her wrists, and still wet in the deeper pools. A fire captain and an EMS supervisor both concluded that Betsy had died more than an hour earlier. Her wrists weren't just slashed, no. The knife had been driven all the way to the bone. It had sliced into her skull, plunged into her left eye, and lacerated her throat, bursting the right carotid artery. Riss had told the 911 operators my wife killed herself, an assumption that struck the first responders as ludicrous. Well, you know, I can understand where they're coming from, but this man just lost his wife, so he's not really thinking straight. But anyways, I'm playing both sides of the cards, I know. Most of the stab wounds, though, were hidden by her clothes. There were deep punctures in her abdomen, perforations in her lungs, liver, and spleen, All told, she had been stabbed 55 times. The house was a mess, with crusty saucepans in the sink and shopping bags, snowmen and Santas scattered around the bloody corpse. A search even turned up Russ's slippers, tan suede scuffs, thrown atop a pile toward the back of his closet. They were blood-stained the top of one shoe's right toe area, splotched on the right side, and ran along one side of the other scuff. The first officer on the scene, Lincoln County Sheriff's Deputy Chris Hollingsworth, noted that Russ was visibly upset, but had limited tears coming from his eyes. He appeared to be in a state of panic, having difficulty talking and breathing. On the 911 call, he moaned, No, 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 and then, My God, oh my God, God, oh my God. But as the operator told him to calm down and get his wife's medicines, his voice steadied and he seemed to be moving around the house. When Hollingsworth sat with him in the police car and tried to distract him with talk of the neighborhood where they both grew up, he chatted normally for a while and even laughed. And this struck the police as suspicious. Whenever Russ was left alone to think, though, reality flooded back and his emotions surged over the top, as one officer put it. This, too, struck police as suspicious, because, you know, if you're not crying, it's suspicious, and if you are crying, it's suspicious. Thank you. And no, I have the utmost respect for police officers and detectives. I'm just pointing out that this, you know, it cuts both ways. One detective asked why he hadn't embraced his wife, who was lifeless, her tongue hanging out, and a knife sticking out of her throat. At the station, when he was waiting by himself in the interview room, a penhole camera recorded him whispering no, saying Betsy, sobbing and praying. But during ten hours of interrogation, he held himself together, repeating again and again, I wasn't there, I didn't kill her. The next afternoon, he was driven to the Lake St. Louis police station to take a polygraph. He'd failed, the detectives told him afterwards, their tone hardening into accusation. I found her like that when I got home, he stated, his voice dulled by exhaustion. I walked in the door and I found her. And of course the detective shook his head, you killed your wife. 
By now, they'd talked to Pam. Betsy had made no secret of her longing to move back to, to Lake St. Louis, closer to Chemo, Tennis, and her friends. She'd hatched a plan for herself and Russ to move into her mother's old house. Pam had told detectives that Betsy was going to test the idea on Russ that very evening, and she knew that he'd be furious. Pam said she felt guilty about leaving Betsy to face her husband alone because he had a violent temper. Between what police saw as the dark fantasies of a role-playing game, the rocky history of the Farius's marriage, Russ's alternating calm and hysteria, and Pam's account of his cruelty and greed, well, the case looked close. On January 4th, Russell Feria was charged with first-degree murder and armed criminal action. Two days after Russ was arrested, stlouistoday.com headlined the story, Marital Problems Led to Stabbing Death of Lincoln County Woman. The lead reported that Betsy Feria feared her husband and a friend was liberally quoted saying Betsy had become increasingly uncomfortable with her husband and was thinking of leaving him. Pam, meanwhile, was cooperating fully with the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office, offering DNA, fingerprints, even the time of her trash pickup. When detectives arrived early on the morning of December the 28th to break the news, she had just stepped out of the shower. She told them she'd dropped off Betsy and Troy around 7 p.m., driven home, watched TV with her husband, showered, and gone to bed. She routinely showered both morning and evening, she explained, because, quote, I don't like messing around with somebody who's been sweaty from all day, end quote. Pam emphasized how creepy Betsy's house had looked that night before, dark but with the doors unlocked, and how she'd thought Russ was home early because a silver Nissan Maxima was in the drive. And she focused hard on that silver Nissan, at one point even accidentally blurting a silver Nissan Maxima when police asked what she was driving that night. She also emphasized how odd it was that Betsy didn't have her keys. She said Russ had told Betsy not to bring her purse to chemo, which was strange because Betsy lived out of her purse. Like, what woman doesn't, right? First, Pam said she didn't go inside. Then she said she just went in to turn on the hall light. Then she said she went all the way to the back bedroom because Betsy wanted to show her the jewelry cabinet that Russ had given her for Christmas. Pam said when she left that Betsy was snug on the couch with a blanket around her. Later, Pam would say she may have been on the couch, but today it makes sense that she walked me to the door. Pam called Betsy to tell her when I that she had gotten home, that she had initially told the police. Then she corrected herself and said, well, almost home. In court, she would testify that she called when she got to the highway interchange because that meant she was home free. She knew the way from there. When cell phone records showed that she called at 7.27 p.m. and was still in Troy, she said she'd reached a fork in the road and pulled over so that she could make a call. Pam said she waited, but Betsy didn't answer or call back. When Pam reached home, she first called her son, who lives in a condo nearby, then texted Betsy and got no reply, then called Betsy's mother and said she was worried that Betsy was mad at her for not staying. Sure, she knew Betsy got over her flashes of temper as fast as they rose, but she was concerned about Betsy's mental state. She was supposed to find out the next day whether the chemo was working. Betsy's mother also tried to call Betsy and got no answer. 
Pam went to bed. The detectives jotted this account and left. The next day, they returned to question Mark Hupp, presumably to cross-check Pam's version, yet allowed her to stay for the interview. Okay, seriously like red flags going off all over the place, right? So Mark said he'd been home alone on the 27th, and when Pam called to let him know that she'd arrived at, vet at Betsy's, his cell phone was out in his truck. Pam did the rest of the talking, telling the detectives that Betsy had been afraid of Russ, that he was a huge drinker, that he'd given her cloudy Gatorade for a workout, and that it had smelled terrible, and she'd spat it out, that he was degrading to Betsy, and kept talking about how much money he'd get when she died. Right, I know. Pam said that at the tennis club the previous Thursday, Betsy said she'd written an email to Pam describing how scared she was of Russ, how he'd put a pillow over her face, and said that was what it felt like to die. Pam said she'd never received the email, so they tried to print it out, but couldn't connect Pam's old printer to Betsy's laptop. Pam urged the police several times to look for that email, then swiftly corrected herself to call it a document. After Russ was charged, his cousin hired Joel Schwartz, a roguish, whip-smart defense attorney. As Schwartz read through the police reports, he kept stopping, unconvinced. Why weren't they looking at this Pamela Hupp woman? She was the last person to see Betsy alive, and four days earlier, she'd been made the sole beneficiary of Betsy's life insurance policy. Plus, she'd given the police multiple versions of every detail, and she had no actual alibi. I'm going to say, you know what, Joel Schwartz may be whip smart, and he really is, but you don't need to be whip smart to ask those questions, because seriously, I was reading this and going, what the fuck? Okay, never mind. I'm going to get back to the story. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Russ, on the other hand, had four people swearing he'd been with them all evening and left at 9 p.m. One of the officers clocked his drive home at 23 minutes, going at a good clip and zooming up onto the shoulder to avoid delays. He didn't buy food at Arby's either, and police found a crumpled food receipt in the back of the SUV, time-stamped at 9.09 p.m. Even if Russ had made it home in 23 minutes, he would have only had 9 minutes to stab his wife 55 times and clean up before he called 911. Evidence techs didn't find a speck of Betsy's blood on his body, fingernail clippings, or clothing. And he was still wearing the orange Rhode Island t-shirt and Sonoma jeans captured on security cameras earlier that evening when he filled his car, bought cigarettes, and stopped for Snapple. The police and prosecutor found all these pre-game errands suspicious. He bought cigs at the U-Gas in Wentzville, a different filling station than the one where he filled his car. Was he creating an alibi by getting on camera at all these places? Well, no. Russ always bought his cigarettes at the U-Gas at Wentzville, he told Schwartz. They were 60 cents cheaper than they were at the Conoco. And he still got dog food at Green's Country Store in Lake St. Louis, where the Ferias used to live because they had a rewards card. Besides, he did the errands before 6 p.m., and Betsy was al alive at least until 7.05 p.m. when she left holiday greetings on Mark Hupp's voicemail. 
The strongest evidence in the prosecutor's case was the presence of Betsy's blood on Russ's slippers. But Schwartz felt sure they'd had been bloodied and tossed in his closet to frame him. I mean, it's clear it's not blood he walked through. He told Nathan Swanson, the young lawyer that was assisting him, and there's no spatter on the top, which there would have been, there would have to be if he wore them while he killed her. You don't murder somebody and then put on your slippers. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So Schwartz reread Pam's statements. She made it sound downright sinister that Russ told Betsy not to bring her purse, and the house was dark but unlocked, and his car was in the drive. Wait a minute. Russ interrupted. I never told her to take her, not to take her purse, he said. What it was, we'd been gone all weekend. We went to my parents for Christmas and her sisters for Christmas with her dad. Russ drove and Betsy didn't bother to bring her purse. Then Betsy decided to spend Monday night at her mother's house. So when she wanted to go home Tuesday, she called Russ to say she didn't have her keys and he assured her that he'd leave the door unlocked for her. Rita Wolf, one of Betsy's best friends since their years at St. Dominic High School, reported talking to Betsy around 5 p.m. that day. At one point, Betsy interrupted herself, Wolf said, and blurted, Oh crap, I left my keys at home. I'm going to have to call Russ and have him leave the door open. Frowning, Schwartz set Pam Hupp aside for the moment and picked up an ominous one-paragraph summary of Russ's failing a polygraph. No reputable examiner would give a polygraph after someone had been up for 32 hours or after they'd been smoking marijuana. Had it been a faux polygraph? All Russ knew was that somebody had sat in front of him with a laptop and asked a bunch of questions. Now, faux polygraphs are legal, but they have to be disclosed, and Schwartz had received no notice of one. He asked for video and audio of the polygraph and was told that the video camera wasn't working. He asked for raw data from the polygraph and never received it. The only documentation he could get was a consent form and a typed summary indicating that there were significant, consistent physiological responses indicative of deception. He says Russ offered to take a second polygraph and did all four alibi I'm sorry, as did all four alibi witnesses, but the Lincoln County prosecutor declined. Schwartz returned to Pam Hupp's evolving account of December 27th. First, she thought she'd seen a silver Nissan sedan. Later, she'd say it might have been the Farius's big blue Ford Explorer SUV. Whatever car she thought Russ might have been driving is what she said she saw in the drive, Schwartz would eventually decide. And the, swift, and the shift from not going inside to going all the way to the bedroom... In the end, he told Swanson she went everywhere there was potential evidence to be found. They waited for the lab reports. The major case squad of Greater St. Louis had had Pam swab for DNA, but Schwartz saw no record of that DNA's ever having been compared. Nobody ever confirmed that Pam had worn what she said she'd worn that night, and nobody seemed to have tested the clothes or her car for blood. Pam said she'd call both Mark and Betsy because she was nervous about finding her way home, yet she'd been at Betsy's house quite a few times, most recently the week before. Schwartz puzzled it out. If you went out of your way to drive your friend home just so she could get there a few hours earlier because she needed sleep so badly, why would you bother her by calling when you were just a few miles from her house? 
And if she didn't answer your call and you knew she was exhausted by chemo and coming down with a cold, wouldn't you just think she was maybe asleep or wanted to sleep? He asked Russ about Pam Hupp. And Russ replied, the last six months to a year, they started hanging out a lot. It was just kind of gradually. When she was diagnosed with cancer, a lot of people wanted to be with her. I never had a problem with Pam personally. She was easy to talk to, but I can name half a dozen other people Betsy was closer with. The Friday before her death, as soon as the change of beneficiary form was signed, Betsy and Pam went to the post office. Pam didn't mention this to police at first. Later, she told them she had no idea whether Betsy mailed the form. Pam wanted to mail some stuff to my mother's house, but changed her mind because she was picking her mother up later that same day. Like, if she lives that close that you can pick her up, why are you mailing her stuff? That makes no sense to me. Yet on January the 17th, Pam told State Farm that they'd gone straight to the post office because Betsy wanted to be sure the form was postmarked. State Farm contacted Detective Sergeant Ryan McCarrick, who took charge of the investigation when the major case squad disbanded the same day. He assured State Farm that Pam Hupp was not a suspect, so the company need have no concern about paying her the life insurance proceeds. If Pam was guilty, Schwartz mused, she'd cut it close with the beneficiary form. State Farm recorded it the morning after Betsy's death. What if someone at the agency had decided not to honor the change? As Pam herself told the police, if it's mailed Friday, we had Christmas. She had to be killed. How does that work? She has to be killed or they have to receive it before she's killed. Otherwise, he's still the beneficiary. So if I set it up on my own little mind, why didn't I just wait until Friday to be sure they got it? Because this way you implicate my client, Schwartz thought. And you know where he is every Tuesday. Schwartz played and replayed Pam's videotaped police interviews. She comes across as clear and forthright, and she gives off a very reassuring confidence. Absolutely, she says often, encouraging her interviewer when he echoes or paraphrases her remarks. Offered a break or a beverage, she says, no, I'm fine with a breezy wave. Left alone in the interview room, she sits as still and serene as a Zen master. When the detective returns, she's chatty, her descriptions casual and colorful. I love her to death, she says of Betsy, her voice warm. She asks the detective whether it's normal that Betsy's family has turned against her over the money. It really hurts my feelings, she says. I didn't put a gun to her head and make her fill out the form. Perfectly normal, the, the officer reassures her. They're just striking out because they're hurting. Schwartz rolled his eyes and clicked off the video. She can tell them anything, he thought. If she says she saw a monkey go into that house, they're going to ask whether it was a rhesus or a baboon. He reached for the information on Pam's polygraph. She'd agreed to undergo one, then hired a lawyer who delayed it, then mentioned sustaining several head injuries over the years. The police asked her to get a doctor's clearance, but the note she sent her doctor didn't ask for clearance. It stated, Dear Dr. Fisher, could you please write Detective Kaiser a letter stating that I will not that I was not able to do a polygraph due to medical reasons. Don't need any more detail than that. End quote. Dr. Ronald Fisher, who's in physical medicine and rehabilitation at St. Luke's Medical Group, saw Pam in his office for the first time in months on January the 3rd, then duly provided a note, end quote. 
Pamela Hupp is unable to undergo a polygraph due to her medical condition, end quote. In deposition, he told Schwartz, and I quote, she said that she didn't think she could do it. Apparently, the police thought she couldn't do it, end quote. But was there anything about her medical condition that would preclude her from taking a polygraph? Schwartz asked, and he answered, I would say there's not any condition that would prevent her from doing it. So there's nothing about her condition that would actually keep her from telling the truth. Doctor said, as far as I'm aware, there's not anything that would limit her. In her deposition, Pam denied writing the note to Fisher. I don't think I said anything, she told Schwartz. If you did, it certainly wouldn't have said, write something saying I can't take a polygraph due to medical reasons. And he asked, and she said, absolutely not. He glanced down, tucked in his file was a copy of that handwritten note, which Fisher had faxed to police along with his letter. The next day, when Schwartz deposed McCarrick, he asked the detective whether he believed Pam Hupp. And McCarrick responded, Based on training and experience of dealing with hundreds of interviews with suspects and with witnesses and with victims, McCarrick said, I did not see any signs of deception that would lead me to believe that she was indicating anything that was untrue to me. And Schwartz asked, Did she ever disclose to you that she's been fired from not one but two life insurance jobs for forging signatures? No. Have you ever seen any evidence of a brain injury? No, but I've also not gone through all her medical records. Well, did you ask for those medical records? No. On March 20th, 2013, Schwartz deposed Pam Hupp. What's your disability? I'm not sure what they classify it as. I know I have drop foot and balance problems. It happened, she said, when she tripped at work and hit a filing cabinet with her head. This was in November 2009. She said she'd filed for workers' comp and that the case was still pending. Seriously, in 2009 and it's 2013 and you're still waiting on that? Yeah, I'm not going to buy that. Now, attorney Michael Goldberg did not return messages seeking to confirm that she had retained him. So he continued, You have a head injury. Yes. What's your head injury? I have no idea. How do you know you have memory issues? Well, because you're asking me questions and I don't remember. Even after the prolonged jousting session, Swartz was unprepared for what came next. Pam said she didn't have health insurance and couldn't afford it. She said she didn't have life insurance either. I don't believe in it for myself, she said. Her husband, however, did have life insurance, and amazingly, he's still alive because it's a lot. Schwartz blinked. I'm sorry? And she repeated, I said amazingly he's still alive because it's a lot, and I sold it to him, so... What do you mean by that? I mean, I guess if I wanted a lot of money, I could kill him instead of her. Instead of who? Betsy. Well, who said you killed Betsy? Well, you did, or your private detective told my friends that. And you didn't kill Betsy. I did not kill Betsy. You're still willing to take that polygraph? No. Of course not. Russ Faria's murder trial began November 18th of 2013. 
The Lincoln County prosecutor, a spirited young dark-haired woman named Leah Askey, whose career was on a fast track, opened by saying the motive was greed, and she drew from her witnesses' example of Russ cussing, smoking pot, having a temper, being crude or bossy, having school loan debt, and believing he was still the beneficiary of his wife's life insurance policy. Okay, so everybody who's ever cussed, okay, well, fuck me, because that's me. Smoke pot. Okay, I don't smoke pot, but I have smoked pot. So, wow. And I do have a temper. I can be crude and I can be bossy. I have had school loan debt, but I've paid it off. And so, what, did I kill her too? I mean, seriously, these are like normal everyday people. Anyways, his two stepdaughters, Leah and Mariah Day, who were by now convinced that Russ had killed their mother, testified that he and Betsy fought often. And Leah said dryly, it wasn't the Brady Bunch. Okay, nothing is the Brady Bunch, because fuck the Brady Bunch. Askey's question suggested that whoever killed Betsy had showered, cleaned up, and let the dog out afterward. And Russ was the only one who'd know where the towels were and be able to control his dog, a protective chow mix. She described a smudge that looked like a bloody paw print on Betsy's body. A blue star test for the presence of blood showed none in the splotch, and a crime scene investigator testified that it couldn't even be determined to be a paw print. Police officers testified that Blue Star had revealed a glowing path of cleaned up blood evidence, but their camera had malfunctioned, so the crime scene photos didn't develop. Lab tests could not confirm the presence of blood on the kitchen floor, on the towel drawer, or even in the drain pipe. A crime scene investigator said there had been no bloody footprints in the home, nothing that matched the soles of those tan slippers. Schwartz was convinced that Betty had died before 7.21 p.m. Leah was going to U.S. Cellular that evening to upgrade her phone plan, and she said Betsy had promised to authorize charges over the phone. Leah called her from the store at 7.21, 7.26, and 7.30, and Betsy did not answer. Dying before 721 would account for the rigidity of Betsy's body. But ASCII questioned Dr. Kamal Subharwal, yeah, I, I practiced that name. You guys give me kudos for that one, okay? Who'd performed the autopsy about a phenomenon called cadaveric spasm, which causes rigor almost immediately if death is preceded by extreme physical exertion. Subharwal said cadaveric spasm was rare and not universally accepted, but it was possible. ASCII called Margie Harrell, director of 911 services for Lincoln County. Harrell had not taken Russ's call, but she'd listened to the audio tape and she'd been trained in assessing credibility. She stated, with this one, there was hysteria. Then it was, you asked a question, you get an answer, and then it would go back to being hysteria again. Dr. Alan Felthaus, a forensic psychiatrist at the St. Louis University School of Medicine, says it's a common mistake to look for consistency as proof of someone's emotional state. A person may go in and out of states of shock and distress because people show a remarkable ability to compartmentalize. Askey's next point was that eight sperm cells were present in Betsy's body, so Rust must have had sex with Betsy right before he stabbed her. A forensics analysis testified that shortly after intercourse, hundreds of sperm cells may be present, and that sperm can remain for 72 hours. Russ had told police that he and Betsy were intimate on Sunday evening, and she died two days later. 
well within that 72 hour time frame. By the way, any woman who's ever thought she might be pregnant knows that 72 hour rule, by the way. The Lincoln County investigators never mapped the travels of Russ or Pam's cell phone the night of the murder, but Schwartz brought in an expert, Greg Chatton, owner of Forensic Computer Service. He testified that Russ's phone was still at least 10 miles from his home at 9.25 p.m. It reached his home quadrant around 9.37 p.m., and Russ made the 911 call at 9.40. And Pam's phone? Well, Schwartz was not even allowed to ask in front of the jury. I don't know if I should strip naked, tear my hair out, or just ram my head into the bench to get your attention, he blurted to the judge. Nor was he allowed to bring up Pam Hupp's possible motive as the new beneficiary of Betsy's life insurance because the prosecutor had successfully argued that Pam had no direct connection to the case. When Schwartz tried to cross-examine her about inconsistencies in her story, the prosecutor objected that he was impeaching the, wit the witness. He did, however, manage to ask Pam why she'd initially told the police that she didn't go inside Betsy's house. And she stated, I had not planned on staying in the house, she said, and then I turned around and said that I did go in with her. Richard Hicks, a special prosecutor from the Missouri Attorney General's office, who was assisting Askey, objected and stated, Just because it's a prior inconsistent statement doesn't make it admissible and relevant. I'm trying to figure out what relevance there is after this, other than to try to point his finger at her. Well, yeah, Schwartz did want to point a finger. He still couldn't understand why Pam Hupp had never been a suspect. He tried a few more questions, and she said, I have a little bit of a memory problem. I'm 55 and going through menopause. Like, oh my fucking God. <laughs> In desperation, Swartz made what's called an offer of proof, questioning Pam out of the jury's hearing for the record about the life insurance money. Five days earlier, she had finally put $100,000 in a trust for the girls. And the remaining $50,000? My other girlfriend died of breast cancer in August, she said, and she has a 12-year-old daughter that I'm trying to help. As it turned out, Pam didn't help that 12-year-old. Later, she cheerfully admitted lying to anyone who would bug me and bug me and bug me and bug me about the insurance payouts. In closing, Askey finally revealed her theory of the crime. She said Russ decided that this would be the ultimate role play. Months before, maybe even years before, he had the idea, and I think he brought it to his friends. When Betsy texted that Pam was taking her home, Russ decided that this was the night. He makes all of these stops so that he can establish an alibi, Askey continued, saying he left his phone with his friends and co-conspirators and headed back to Troy. Betsy was on the couch covered in a blanket, and I submit to you that he has sex with her, that he violates her one more time, that he controls her just one more time. Like, oh my God, has this woman ever had consensual sex? I'm thinking no. Anyways. There was no blood on Russ's clothes, Askey continued, because he was naked. He showered off the evidence, saw his dog investigating the corpse, got the dog outside on a chain, cleaned up the blood while calling 911, and realizing that there was blood on his slippers, threw them in the closet. Meanwhile, one of his friends delivered his phone and the Arby's receipt. Until that point, frustrated as he was, Schwartz had tried to think. Askey was just naive. 
she'd boxed herself in by making a snap judgment that the husband did it and spent the next two years driving the investigation to figure out how. But this tore it for him. He rose and faced the jury. Four people, he said, just got accused of murder by the prosecutor of Lincoln County without one shred of evidence. Did Askey seriously think rolling dice and moving little characters inspired by Tolkien's Middle Earth around a hexagonal mat had so twisted five law-abiding citizens' minds that they were eager to conspire in a grisly murder? By the way, Russ's character was a monk, for God's sake. He didn't even use weapons. And one of the players wasn't even there that night. Schwartz realized, why would they go ahead with their long-planned ultimate game without him. And why on earth would Brandon Sweeney, a regular who was the nephew of one of Russ's friends, jeopardize his own life to help an older guy kill his wife? Going to Arby's and getting food for me, and then Jack in the Box for himself, and then up to Troy. He'd never even been to my house in Troy, so that he could give me a receipt? Russ whispered to himself incredulously. And some trash to put in my car? Schwartz began his closing argument. Askey's theory jabbing his brain. Russ had stripped naked, had sex with his wife, stabbed her, and then, what, reclothed her dead, bloody body? Well, my lovelies, I know you're probably as fired up as I am, but this is getting to be a very, very long episode. And you know what? We're going to break it into two episodes. I know you just you just went, oh, crap! I know, but honey, I got so many more pages to go through. Like, seriously, it would be like a three-hour episode. And I love you guys too much for that. And plus, you know, it's getting kind of late and i got to go to sleep. So, with that, we have come to the end of today's episode. And I do thank you for joining me today. I hope you'll take time to reach out to me and tell me how much I suck. I know, I suck. And please share your thoughts on what you think so far. I promise you I'm going to try and record part two of this and maybe post it a little early for you, my lovelies, because I love you. But you can always reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. So go on and spam me. I promise you I will reply to every nasty name you call me. And if you do have suggestions for some future shows or you just want to tell me how much I suck, drop me a line because I do reply to all my emails. On that note, that's all the time that we have for this evening, and I do thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. Don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you dearly. Mwah! We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.